Let me set the scene. We're in Palm Springs. It's the middle of the summer, which if you haven't been to Palm Springs in the middle of the summer, it's hot. We're standing in a pool, celebrating one of my friend's birthdays, eating street tacos, drinking margaritas. It was beautiful. Music was playing, people were dancing, laughing, singing. As the songs turned over, Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run came on the radio. The song just starts with a charge, and it keeps going. It's unrelenting, and it's big, and it makes you want to move, and it makes you feel like you're driving really fast in a car, that you're running from something, but you're running with someone. And there's a huge buildup and breakdown at the end of the song. While I stand there, I was just thinking to myself, is this the best song ever written? I mean, it could be. It's an amazing piece of art. And as I went home from that birthday trip, I jumped on Facebook, still thinking about what the greatest song ever written might be and what people's opinions were. And so I posed the question. And the first response I got was kind of a no-brainer. The gentleman said, easy. It's Amazing Grace. And you know what? I think he was right. When I initially wanted to start this little mini-series on uh, trying to rediscover worship or the point of worship or the purpose of worship or where we find ourselves in worship, the obvious first song to start with was Amazing Grace. And that was my intention, except that the project just happened to start around Christmas time and Oh Holy Night just made sense. But this song is kind of a cousin to that one anyway. It took on a new life of its own, similar to that of O Holy Night. I think on the last episode I said that writing and recording music is kind of akin to having children. A lot of creativity and love goes into the creation and the process and putting it all together and making sure that it's ready and equipped to be out in the world and meet other people that are out of your control. And largely what happens is a song, once you're done and you put it out there, it does have a life of its own. It's open to ridicule, it's open to critique, it's open to being involved in people's lives that you'll never know about. It's magic, and Amazing Grace has very much that trajectory in its story. So, let's do a little history first on John Newton, his life, where the song came from, and the life that it has had from that point of its inception all the way up until now in 2023. So, Buckle up. Here we go. The real question is, where do you even start? John Newton had quite a crazy history that led up to the time period in which he wrote this hymn. He grew up in a home where his mother died early. His father was consistently out at sea. When he was a kid, he joined his father on the ship, became an apprentice, and learned quite a bit about being at sea. And in time, he became a sailor himself. His faith came and went. He would sometimes lean in, and then he would often renounce. He began to create quite a lineage of disobedience, one of them eventually causing him to have to join the Navy, which he later deserted when he met a woman named Mary Catlett. But because of his deserting, he was traded as a crew member to a slave ship. 
And thus he began a long career in the trading of enslaved people. There's various accounts in different books that I looked at that talk about how crass Newton was. That not only would he use profane language on a ship, which was fairly normal amongst sailors, but he would even make up profanities about the captain. But in 1748, while he was sailing in the North Atlantic, a violent storm showed up and it started knocking people off the ship. In particular, a crewman that he saw get knocked into the sea was standing where he was standing just moments before. And he began to ask the hard questions again, crying out in the storm, if this will not do, then Lord have mercy upon us. He survived, but the moment in the storm stuck with him and he started to ask some hard questions of himself and what does God's mercy and purpose and calling really look like for all of us. It wasn't an immediate conversion or an immediate dedication. It took him a while, leaning in and renouncing over and over again until his health made it so that he could no longer sail. While working in the village Olney, Newton began to teach himself Latin, Greek, and lean more into theology. He was encouraged to become a priest, but was not accepted to become one because he had no education. But he continued his devotions, and after being encouraged to tell his whole story, his life and experiences in the slave trade, he was offered the role of curacy of Olney. And a curate is a person who uh, is tasked with caring for souls of an area or a particular thing. In this case, it was an Olney. Small, poor village. Now, one of the things that was unique about Newton is that he started to embrace writing hymns and poetry as a way of helping his congregates to understand and retain the information from his messages. It's something we know now as super effective with children, that the melody and the repetition of singing helps children to better grasp and hold on to information. That's something we've leaned into much more so in recent history. Amazing Grace was one such hymn. While the lyrics were written in 1772, the first time that it was used in a prayer meeting was likely on New Year's Day of 1773. It was most likely presented in lyrical form without melody or song attached to it, as many of these were in that time. Often, what would happen in this case is that these poems or hymns, these lyrics, these words, would be put to pre-existing music, folk hymns that people were uh, familiar with the melodies of the time. This eventually happened with Amazing Grace as it was sung to the melody of a song called New Britain. Amazing Grace was not a huge hit, in England to start. It actually took off way more over here. It was involved in some hymnals, but was usually overlooked. Some people said that it was too basic and childlike in its lyricism, but that ended up being one of its strongest points. Newton took hard concepts or elements of life that people could relate to and understand in simplistic terms. Now, a lot of authors claim that Amazing Grace was written as a response to Newton's time on slave ships, a rebuke of that practice. And he himself became a staunch abolitionist in his later years and used his position and the music to help support that. Newton joined up with a man named William Wilberforce, who many of you probably heard of. He was part of the parliament in Britain. And they led a campaign to abolish the slave trade in the British Empire, culminating in the Slave Trade Act of 1807. Newton himself became more outspoken about abolitionism in the 1780s 
it's unknown how much of Amazing Grace is really actually tied into the anti-slavery movement. The sermon that Newton gave on New Year's Day in 1773, first of all, New Year's being a holiday that he would use every year as a way to take stock of where you were spiritually, kind of like a checking in and making sure that you're still on track kind of thing. His sermon that day was focused on someone's ability to express or just being grateful for God's guidance, for God being involved in our lives, and for patience for the deliverance from the things that were going on in our daily lives. It was something that everybody could relate to and understand. Newton, in a lot of ways, saw himself much like David, somebody who was chosen and used by God despite all the heinous acts they'd committed in their life. Many of the lines in the song you can kind of trace for yourself if you are familiar with stories in the Bible. Many people think the first verse is an example of the prodigal son. In the Gospel of Luke, the father says, For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. In many ways, this was Newton's story. He was a son who was lost. He was a son who was blind. And he found his way out because of God's grace. Now, Amazing Grace itself is perhaps the most sung, the most recorded, and the most loved hymn in the entire world. There really isn't anything that comes close to it. It is estimated the song is sung at least 10 million times a year internationally. And in so doing, it somehow speaks to so many different people in so many different places and so many different postures of need and exaltation. And all those different people find their way into it. Whether or not they know the origins of the song, it has become something of its own. Jonathan Aitken, in a biography on John Newton that I got most of this information from, wrote this. Newton was also being faithful to his personal testimony. There are 15 first-person pronouns, I, me, my, mine, that appear in the original version of the hymn. These pronouns were not indications of an ego trip by Newton. He used them as illustrations of the personal journey of faith and redemption that has been traveled by countless believers in God's grace from the dawn of salvation history to the present time. And much of this is backed up in writings and personal letters and diary entries, of which Newton wrote a lot. Now, like I said, the song didn't have a huge life in England to begin with and was often overlooked in hymnals. The only hymns, the book that this song, as well as most of the other ones that he had written with his partner, was first published in New York in 1790. By the 1830s, Newton's verses were being sung in churches of varying denominations all over the country. It was becoming very popular because there was such a passionate expression of different emotions and flow from the conversion. It began to gain popularity particularly in the South. Much music that was sung in the southern states during that time was accompanied by what was later termed revivalist music, or better known now as gospel music. This is where Amazing Grace was teamed up with the melody of New Britain song that apparently no one knows where it came from. It was a man named William Walker, a singing instructor in South Carolina, who put the two together and scored a songbook called The Southern Harmony. Up until that point, the song had been sung using various different tunes. So you may walk into one church, sing it one way, walk down the street to another, and sing it another way. It was again living a life all of its own. So while William Walker played a very important role in the amazing grace that we all know today, he was somebody who was emerged and steeped in the culture of the American South. 
In particular, most things point to his immersion in the African-American culture of the time, whose traditions always included soulful singing about conversion, sin-filled life, and grace. The song also found new popularity in life in the book Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe, which was published in 1852. In chapter 38, the humiliated slave Tom is lying beside the embers of a fire having a soul crisis. Aitken writes, in the midst of his own sufferings, he sees a vision of the suffering Christ and hears a voice telling him that one day he too will be clothed in glory. The passage continues. Tom looked up to the silent, ever-living stars, types of the angelic hosts who look down on man. And the solitude of the night rang with the triumphant words of a hymn which he had sung often in happier days, but never with such feeling as now. Aitken goes on to talk about how there's two intriguing innovations that differentiated this Uncle Tom's Cabin version of the hymn in 1852 from Newton's original text. But perhaps the most profound change or addition to the song is the final verse that we all know so well. That was immortalized here. And that verse goes as such. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun... We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Again, it's a song that has walked a very long road with very many people and has grown and matured and evolved over time. As time moved on, the song began to grow even more. In the mid-20th century, it moved from gospel music to popular music. It was played on popular radio. The first person who kind of prompted this movement was Mahalia Jackson, who recorded Amazing Grace for Apollo Records in 1947. And it became a huge hit. People were buying it and listening to it all over in their homes. And she was a good friend and supporter of Martin Luther King Jr. And she sang Amazing Grace at numerous civil rights marches all over the country in the 60s. Jackson wrote, During those days of turmoil, I sang Amazing Grace as a rune to give magical protection a charm to ward off danger, an incantation to the angels of heaven to descend. I was not sure the magic worked outside of church walls in the open air of Mississippi, but I wasn't taking any chances. Another big movement forward for the song was when Judy Collins recorded it in 1970. She described the song as a talisman against death, against a raging war. For her, it was an anthem of protest against the Vietnam War. In the 70s, it was also recorded by the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards on bagpipe. And what did that do? It offered a strange lamentation to the song. And suddenly the song was being used at funerals, at memorial services, and other different sorrowful occasions. This idea of grace was beginning to transcend into different situations of human life. Colin sang the song at the funeral for her son who took his own life. It was saying at the funeral for John F. Kennedy Jr., yet it also frequently became used at joyful church services, weddings, baptisms, celebrations of anniversaries, just all over the place. Later, in my lifetime, Amazing Grace was sung as the Space Shuttle Challenger blew up in 1986, and then at Ground Zero in New York after 9-11. Because of its history now and its use across all these different situations, Amazing Grace has sometimes been called the spiritual national anthem of America and has transcended Christianity to be used by those of the Jewish faith, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, and then people who have no faith at all. While the song has been sung in gospel tunes and gospel situations for years, it has also been recorded by many secular 
I'm using air quotes, artists throughout history. It was performed at Woodstock by Arlo Guthrie. It was performed by Aretha Franklin, Rod Stewart, Johnny Cash, Sam Cooke, The Birds, Elvis Presley, Willie Nelson, The Lemonheads, Ani DeFranco, Carrie Underwood, on and on and on and on and on. How does this idea of grace, how does the history of this song cross over so many different borders and boundaries with people in all different walks of life? How does a song written by a reformed slave trader become an anthem for civil rights, a song embraced by an African-American culture, a song used in opposition to war? How does that happen? How does that song travel through history and find itself being sung by the first African-American president of the United States at a funeral for those who were killed in a mass shooting in Charleston, South Carolina. President Obama embodied so much of what this song was about. That's what I felt this week, an open heart. That more than any particular policy or analysis That's right. is what's called upon right now, I think. Yeah. What a friend of mine, the writer Marilyn Robinson calls that reservoir of goodness beyond and of another kind that we are able to do each other in the ordinary cause of things. That reservoir of goodness. Mm -hmm. If we can find that grace, uh -huh. anything is possible. Yeah. If we can tap that grace, uh -huh. everything can change. Right. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that Sarah Kaufman wrote an article called Why Obama's Singing of Amazing Grace is So Powerful in the Washington Post. And she goes through much of this history that we've already looked at. And she wrote this. He's, Obama, right to bring it up to show us how grace can be perceived and that it is worth noticing. Grace is an ancient notion, and it has a kind of universal hold on us, whether we're religious or not. Many of us relate to the idea of grace as a comfort to the soul, a form of love, a way to get through difficulty. Being human can hurt. It hurts because we are, most of us, compassionate creatures. We are linked to one another. We can hear about a senseless shooting in a church miles away and feel our hearts drop to the floor. But if we didn't feel this pain, we wouldn't also feel the comfort. Perhaps this explains why Amazing Grace, surely one of the best-known songs in the English-speaking world, is so uplifting. So the dictionary defines grace as an unmerited divine assistance given to humans for their regeneration or sanctification, or a state of sanctification enjoyed through divine assistance. And then it defines sanctification as to set apart to a sacred purpose or to religious use, to free from sin. All these big theological words, sanctification, grace, divine assistance, regeneration, consecration, are all threads in a tapestry, a long and large tapestry. When I asked Mike to define grace for me, he said this, a non-merit-based gift from a socially higher status person to a lower status person with expectations of allegiance and fidelity in return. All right, so let's play a game. Let's say the angry God 
the one that we all were raised with that wanted to punish us if we didn't pray the prayer, that called us wicked and terrible, that we are nothing, that we are just dirty. Let's say that that God is actually invested in the project that he started in the garden, that he wants to see humanity restored and fulfilled, okay? Let's say that other players are on the field, that there are other entities that have entered the conversation and have distracted, distorted, and caused humans to trip and to fall off the trail? What if grace is a way of reminding us what it means to be part of a community? What it means to love your neighbor? What if loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind means taking up this project and this purpose and this calling? When the BLM movement first began and people started to push back with the idea of all lives matter, one of the examples that was given or used was that of going to the doctor Let's say you have fractured your wrist and you go to the doctor to have it mended. But the doctor says, why would I focus on this one? All bones matter. And you say, yeah, all my bones matter. They're important for (laughs) me not falling into a clump of flesh on the ground. All these bones are wonderful things. But this one is broken and this one needs attention. What if we are the people who embrace seeing suffering and leaning into it? of elevating our fellow humans, of loving the Lord our God the way that he is looking to be loved. And what if the way that he is looking to be loved is doing exactly that, so beautifully illustrated in the Sermon on the Mount? So how do we find our way into this ongoing conversation? For Newton, was grace God saving him repeatedly? Or was grace God showing him the error of his ways, the humanity of the enslaved, and the chance to become an abolitionist and pursue equity and equality as a member of the kingdom of heaven. Are we invited to much of the same thing? Is God's grace not purely redemption, but also an invitation? Is God's love not so much making us clean, but inviting us into a shared humanity and a vision that began in the garden? I think that it is. And as I continue on this journey to understand worship, and to understand what it is that God desires from us in a worship setting. And as we explore these songs of resistance, these songs that inspire us to live as rebels within a world that exalts other things, this song is right at the top. How do we exist as sisters and brothers, as wives and husbands, as mothers and fathers, as neighbors? How do we lean into the grace that God has given us to show us what it means to live as a fully formed human, what it means to elevate our neighbors and those in pain and suffering? What if grace is just simply that, showing us the error of living for ourselves and the encouragement to live a life in the support of others? I started playing Amazing Grace in all my sets when I would play live. Funny enough, I actually always play it in tandem with Bruce Springsteen's I'm on Fire. Makes for a weird seesaw of emotions. But one of the things that I do with the song is I added a chorus to it. Now, I didn't do so for any egotistical purpose. It's not like I think that I can add anything to this song or to the history that comes with it. But on the chorus, I started singing Hallelujah and Amen. Hallelujah, a word that is used to express praise or joy and exclamation, thanksgiving. Felt appropriate. And then the word amen, something we're most uh, familiar with at the end of a prayer that's like a statement or an expression of approval. Somebody once told me, and it's never come out of my head, that amen is also akin to saying make it so, 
which is what Patrick Stewart used to say as Captain Jean-Luc Picard in Star Trek The Next Generation, make it so. So it's always stuck with me that way. I suggest we beam a section aboard for analysis. Make it so, number one. And in singing an exaltation of the grace that God has shown us and what is asked of us and what is expected of us within that grace and what that grace has revealed to each of us, where we were once blind and now we see, what better way to put a exclamation point on that than to say a statement of approval or of assent to make it so and to sing it in praise. Hallelujah. Amen. When I uploaded this song to Spotify and Apple Music, etc., I did so not with the name Amazing Grace, but with the name Dangers, Toils, and Snares. Often that kind of feels like what the song is really advocating for, is avoiding those very things and the grace of God in illuminating those things for us to avoid and to help one another avoid. Again, to quote the master, Bruce Springsteen, and his son's called If I Should Fall Behind, he says this, If as we're walking a hand should slip free, I'll wait for you. And should I fall behind, wait for me. Shine 
Stay